Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Psalm 18 as we continue in our sermon series in the book of Psalms this morning. We've been continuing on and will continue for the next couple of weeks uh, and then jump back into Mark, the book of Mark, uh, as the fall rolls around. So that will be good to get back into that, but the, the Psalms are indeed rich. Um, and as you turn to Psalm 18, uh, you'll recognize that this is a fairly lengthy psalm, not necessarily the longest psalm, but we are in for a long reading this morning. And that is a good thing, to hear larger portions of Scripture read. And so even as we read this psalm, it may not take more than three minutes, but it's interesting how fast-paced our world is, that it is hard to be patient for three minutes of 50 verses. So uh, this is something that we are going to read all 50, so <laughs> no getting around that. Uh, as we look at this, so a couple notes even before we jump into studying this that are very helpful for us as we think about this psalm. This is a, what they would call a royal psalm. And you've probably seen that designation before for the psalms. And it's kind of an odd one. You're like, okay, that's, it identifies it, I suppose, but it's not all that helpful in my understanding. It's like, okay, it's royal. Good. Next. Uh, and the royal psalms really were something to identify. These psalms that were written by the king of Israel. And that's not um, to be misunderstood as just by David. This is actually D David within his kingly role for the people of Israel. And that is unique for us because we don't often think in those terms of what is David doing in his kingly role. And this has to do with the Davidic covenant. You think of the way that God was establishing his presence among his people. That he says to Abraham, I will be your God, you will be my people. And he starts to press in further and further with these people. And with David, he actually establishes his kingdom permanently. Pretty unique. And so all of a sudden he has a home amongst his people. And he has a rule amongst his people. And a ruler that he uses very specifically. And so this kind of solidifies the relationship, so to speak, between God and his people in a way that it had never been before. And so in a very real sense, as the kingdom of God was coming into Israel, it was to some degree realized the kingdom of God was here with David on the throne. Something that we long for in the New Testament saying, Lord, your kingdom come. And here is a brief moment in which that actually happened. And you see this, although our hearts weren't ready to receive it yet, it had happened for a brief moment. And so a royal psalm like this is God directing the nation of Israel through this psalm in a very formal way. And so David is coming before the people, and this is a psalm that he had actually spoken on his behalf personally in 2 Samuel chapter 22, as he comes before God. And then he brings it here into the Psalms for the people of Israel to hear, to sing, and to recite, to be reminded that these things are attitudes your heart should be shaped after. As we think of all the distress, the difficulties, the hardships that we will go through as a kingdom, one of the ways in which your heart should be reminded is to trust in the Lord your God, your strength again and again, regardless of what happens. And so this is something that they needed to hear. And so this is indeed a royal psalm, and there is some formality to that, to say these are words on behalf of the king of Israel and the kingdom of God. So let's do read Psalm 18 together and hear what it is that God is doing here for his people. 
And this is indeed applicable for us this morning as we think we are indeed after the same things and we do serve the same God. So if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word, we'll read all of Psalm 18. So either read along or listen to this. And it is a longer section, but this is a rich section of scripture. This is God's word. He says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed, and the heavens came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens. The Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of the waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. This God... His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? 
And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with the strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer. And he set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and I did not turn back until they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were unable to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with the strength for battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. And those who I hated, who hated me, I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them as fine dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as, I, as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock. And exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. As we study this this morning, let's do pray as we come before God. Father God, we do come before you this morning, seeing the way in which you work so powerfully amidst your people, on behalf of your people, for the sake of your people. Lord, I pray that this morning as we see these words, our hearts could be shaped and formed by you to trust you, to love you more than we have before, to turn away from sin and to turn towards you. Lord, would you use these verses in our church as powerfully as you'd use them throughout all the history of your people, Lord, to shape and to form us, to bring your kingdom here. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Mandela Effect is something that... uh, Many of you may know of, you may have heard of, and this is a phenomenon where different people from different backgrounds who don't necessarily know each other will remember details of an event in the exact same way in error. And so it is this thing that was identified by this lady who's a writer, Fiona Brome, and this is different than kind of propaganda theory in which false things are shared for a specific purpose. But this is just kind of a general phenomenon that comes up. And she recognized this as she was at this conference and she begins to talk to other conference goers. And they're talking about Nelson Mandela. And they're thinking, well, yeah, Nelson Mandela, he died in prison in the 1980s. And they're all talking about that. They're like, yeah, that's right. All thinking of themselves as professionals and keeping track of history. And they go home and they realize, like, that's not right at all. 
after you do some history and research. It came out that he actually had died much later. He passed away in his home in 2013. And they're like, wait, but we saw her, like, on, like his wife on the news saying that he died. Like, how is this possible? And they had all remembered these facts in absolute error. And it turns out he goes on to be the leader in South Africa. And they're like, yeah, I guess we were wrong. He's alive. And so it was one of these situations in which they were somewhat disconnected from what was going on. They were somewhat disconnected from the facts of reality, and they remembered something in absolute error. Now, this gal had gone on to say, like, well, maybe uh, the reason for this is there's, like, you know, multiple realities, parallel universes. It's like, well, maybe you just misremembered and didn't know the guy very well, and so <laughs> you just remembered things wrong. Uh, and this often happens in our own lives, and this would happen often actually in the history of Israel. Something that they didn't pay close attention to, they would remember facts very differently, even about their own God, even about something that seemed like it was very significant, such as being delivered from Egypt, in which they remembered, well, it wasn't so bad back there. Maybe we could go back, God. <laughs> Maybe you might send us back. Or... I know you just delivered us, but maybe let's go worship these other gods. Seems like they might be better for us. And so oftentimes we will do this to say, I don't remember exactly what happened. And I'm going to kind of recreate history as I see fit and recreate it for my own use and benefit here. And Psalm 18 here begins to shape this pattern within the people of Israel that says, don't forget who did this. On your behalf. Don't forget who delivered you when you were weak, when you were low, when you were destitute. Don't forget who made you righteous. Don't forget who ultimately brought all these things to be. And the king of all Israel is reminding his people this is what just happened. And we will sing it for many, many years and you will teach this to your children. And so as we think on these things, one of the things that we see in Psalm 18. That David is communicating to the people of God is that we must remember that it is the Lord who has given you strength. When you have just gone through something that required something miraculous, when you have, it has required absolute miracle almost, you can think, well, we did that, guys. And David is pointing him back and saying, remember that it is the Lord who has given you strength. And he gives us some specific ways in which we can see the strength of the Lord on full display. A couple of ways that we see God's strength is first in our weakness, also in our righteousness, and lastly in our deliverance. So let's do in the first section here, verses 1 through 18. We'll start in verses 1 through 6. Uh, we do see the Lord's strength in our weakness. Let's do start by reading verses 1 to 6 again. He says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me and the snares of death confronted me in my distress i called upon the lord to my god i cried for help and from his temple he heard my voice and 
My cry to him reached his ears. And here we hear how God's strength is evident. But then we also hear it is in our weakness. It is in total defeat, at least in the face of total defeat. The cords of death, he says, encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. And in my distress, I called for the Lord, he says. He reaches out to God at this place of absolute poverty. He's saying, I have nothing to do here. And how, at the point of our total weakness, does it feel like there's any hope of strength? This is the point in which we recognize there is nothing about me that is strong. (laughs) There's nothing about me that is able to accomplish this. And it's very counterintuitive to think that the strength is most on display from the Lord when I am at my weakest And we think of these things, it is kind of a humbling moment to come to. And it is to say, like, I want to see the Lord's strength through me. I don't want to see the Lord's strength in absence of me. And yet here is where the psalm starts. It is at the point of absolute poverty that you see the Lord's strength. And what does it describe it as? It describes it with great power. Immense power to the point it almost sounds as if God is lurching forward like a dragon on behalf of his people. I don't know if many of you have seen this. I don't necessarily like the movie, The Hobbit, but one of the things it does well, I like the book. The, the movie was a little bit difficult. But one of the things it does very, very well is that it, it, it depicts the dragon that J.R.R. Tolkien describes in a very vivid and real way. And as Bilbo walks into this, this, this giant throne room of the dwarves, uh, this dragon is in there, and they are all terrified. And they're saying, don't wake up the dragon. He is the real deal. And you're kind of just wondering on the edge of your seat of what is it going to be like? And just the tension leading up to that moment, and all of a sudden he wakes up, and he is as awful and as terrible as they have described him. It's like, if this dragon wants to tear someone apart, he will. And he moves quickly and fast, and he is able to destroy anything he wants. And this is the way that we see God acting on behalf of his people. It's not as if we are Bilbo in the scenario. We are the treasure. And the dragon moves forward with absolute precision and power. And you start to hear the way that the psalmist describes this. Verses 7 through 19, he says, The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the mountain also trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down thick Darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered him in the heavens, and the Most High uttered, his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them and flashed forth lightning and routed them. 
Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. If you are at the lowest of the low, the weakest point you can imagine, saying, Lord, I can't go on. It is as if death is surrounding me. That is your God who begins to work on your behalf. That is your God. Even when it doesn't always feel like that is your God, that is your God who begins to move forward. And that should rack you as a believer to say, this Lord God who created all things with absolute power and majesty for any who oppose the people of God, that is the thing that they face. For any situation that opposes the people of God, that is the God that they face. And so we start to ask, well, why me? Why do we see God's strength in the midst of our weakness? You'd, you'd start to think, well, maybe he'd try and find a different people who aren't so weak. And yet it says towards the end here in verse 19, he brought me out into this broad place. He enters in with absolute authority. Why? Because he delighted in me. Because he delighted in me. It's absolutely baffling to say at my weakest, at my lowliest, when I had nothing to offer in him, offer him at all, God turns to me and he acts very decisively. Why? Because he delights in you. Unreal to say this is the nature of being a believer, of having Jesus Christ claim me as his own, to be able to say that is my God, and it is to say at that moment he delights in you and he acts this way on your behalf. And this is the way that we have great confidence as believer, to be able to be weak, to be honest before the Lord, to need his help, we are often fearful to show weakness. Thinking, if I show weakness, then and only then will I be fully destroyed. If I show this to the watching world, even to believers, brothers and sisters, if I show these things, it's going to be really bad for me. And yet this is the place in which we can turn to God, knowing he is my advocate. He acts on my behalf. The Apostle Paul knew this. In fact, he gloried in his weakness because of what he knew about his God. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, he says this, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. To be able to look at our weakness the way that the Apostle Paul, the way that David does, to be able to say that it is good. I will boast all the more gladly of it. I will say, this is when I see my God working, and he is awesome, and he is on my behalf. That is what I want to see. I will boast of it if it is going to 
bring him to my rescue. We don't usually like hardships in our flesh. It's not real natural to say these things are good. My weakness is good. My calamity is good. But the Apostle Paul and David, they recognize that our weakness, we see God's power. So as we learn to do this, what are the ways we begin to see this? It's easy to say, not easy to do. When you're just struggling to get by, it doesn't sound even as glorious as what David is going through. We like the stories that sound much more dramatic, but on just some basic levels. Not getting the sleep I need because I have kids in the home and I can't even hardly put together my home and my life to be able to just make a meal or clean up everything I need to do. And it feels like you are weak at times in your life because it's like nothing's quite going right. Even in these moments, God is strong for you. At those moments when we don't have the finances we hoped we have, we're trying to be wise and to plan everything the way we're supposed to, working hard, being diligent, and yet finances come short. It's very humbling. It can be very isolating, and you feel like, I don't have enough. God is strong enough for that. God's strength is shown in the midst of that situation. When your body is failing due to sickness, growing older, it's uncomfortable to admit that my body actually hurts. My body is failing me. There's certain things that are not working the way they should, do, should be, and it makes me look weak, act weak, not be able to do what God's even called me to do. I don't like it. And yet God's strength is even shown here in the failing nature of our own bodies. And when we are persecuted for the faith, we like to think, well, I'll just get better at apologetics and defeat all those naysayers who think that my religion is not right. And yet there's moments you enter into these moments and you feel absolutely alone, scoffed, mocked, and some places in the world even beaten and tortured for these things. It's not a position of great power. And yet you know, why can we rejoice? Because my God who was just described is on my behalf. And it is in my weakness that he will show his strength. Not always in the way we think, not always in the way we expect, but he will act this way. The Lord does show his strength in our weakness. It is something that we have to learn to believe and to trust and to hold to as believers. To say weakness is not something that we need to avoid. It's something to be expected. And now how do we turn to and trust in God in these moments? That is the character of the believer. The character of the one who lives in the kingdom of God. To say I trust in my God above all things. So we do see the Lord's strength in our weakness, but we also see in the next several verses, 19 through 30, that the Lord's strength is seen in our righteousness. Let's begin again here by reading verses 19 through 24. Uh, we'll continue on from 20, actually. Uh, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me. And his statutes 
I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him. I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord was reward, has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. In this opening statement, the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. It's somewhat perplexing, even as you hear the verse before where it says, why did he do this? Because he delighted in you. And it's even perplexing as we think of other scriptures and we think, it is not because of my righteousness, right? Isaiah 64, 6, it says, We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. We're all fade, we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And the Apostle Paul brings this up again back in Romans to remind us that it is not your righteousness. God would often say, it's not because of your righteousness that I'm doing this. And yet here, David is able to say, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. So how are we able to see the Lord strengthen our righteousness? Our righteousness is clearly only given to us by God. To see and understand this, there's a few things the reader must keep in mind here as we think about who is it that's writing this. This is David, about who... The books of Samuel is very clear about his own sins and failings, about his own impurities, about his own life. And yet he states this. And it is also clear that what is it that makes him righteous? Within God's rules and laws and everything he's done, there is a way for David to state this with absolute certainty, that God had actually built in a way for him to be righteous through sacrifice through coming back before him in humility. And so he is able to state this with absolute humility, saying, I am righteous, but by the work of my God. It is not as though the psalmist is blameless in and of himself. It is God's strength and his power that has made him righteous. And if you think about the work that has happened to make someone righteous, the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, the work of the sacrifices upon which the Israelites relied at the time for their righteousness, it's incredible. When we have sinned, we've, we have angered this God that was just described. All that wrath and that fury could be poured out rightly upon us. And yet, we are brought back to a place in which that God counts us as righteous. By his grace and mercy. We think of strength very easily in different categories, but we don't quite think of God's strength in the category that David just depicts it here of, I am able to be righteous. That takes an immense amount of power and ability. For God to be able to make us righteous again is unbelievable. And yet this is God who is doing it. We often think, well, God may have kind of helped me along, but it was really me that did it. But God says it again and again, that I am the one who makes you holy. I am the one who makes you righteous. This is reminded to the people throughout Scripture. Exodus 31, even speaking of the Sabbath, he says, you are to speak to the people, speaking to all the people of Israel, saying, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. 
you shall keep the Sabbath because it is for you holy. I sanctify you. I make you righteous. I make you holy. You are doing these deeds, but it is me who is doing it. In Ezekiel chapter 37, in speaking of the new covenant, just a chapter before, uh, the prophet speaks the words of God and says, They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all of their backsliding in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. I will do it. I will restore this relationship between me and them and they will walk in the, these ways. And we must not forget, why are we holy? Why are we righteous? Why is there anything good in me? It is very easy to forget all that God has done and accomplished in me and say, well, I'm a little better than this person standing over here. And yet God is saying, I have done this work in you. I have accomplished it. I have sanctified you. I am the one who chose you and selected you and brought you before me, and I will make you holy. And you're seeing God's power and his righteousness on full display. When you see the righteousness of any brother or sister who's in the church, what are you really looking at? The beautiful work of God on their behalf. And say, that is the righteousness of God. <laughs> and we have to guard our own hearts to say, like, Lord, why can't you give me that righteousness? And yet God works all these things according to his timing and to his will. And he continues to do this work. And this is something that God continues to do. And as the psalmist says, he says, I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not acted wickedly or departed from my God. This is not a statement of sinless perfection, but what he's saying is, I've not turned away from the one who makes me righteous. I've not departed from even the means of righteousness, which is the way of the Lord. He didn't come up with this stuff on his own. This is things that God had given to him. This is how you become righteous. And we think of the work and the law of God by the sacrifice of God on behalf of his people. It is amazing that this is possible. Matthew 19, verse 26, when they're asking, how do I find my way into heaven? One of the rich young rulers is asking this, and he says, these are the things you have to do, and it's a high bar, all the things that are required. And the guy says, this is impossible. <laughs> I can't do all of this. And Jesus says, very honestly, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Where does the psalmist find his righteousness? In God alone. It is indeed possible. And it is displaying the strength of our God on full display. When you see righteousness, when you see goodness, when you say, why does the church look the way it does? It is because of the grace and the goodness and the power of God. Let's continue to read Verses 25 through 30. 
He says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble person, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. It is quite amazing as you read this you hear these words of God is leading me into these things he has led me into his law and as I seek mercy as I am given mercy I receive mercy this is where mercy comes from it is from the character and nature and the law of God it's not as if we are coming up with these things where do we find what is right, what is true, what is good, what is noble, what is pure? It is within God himself. And you look out anywhere else out in the world and it's like, what is right, what is wrong? No one knows apart from God, God's word, God's character. All of them eventually find their way back to the character and the person of God. Even if they don't want to believe it, this is where righteousness and goodness is found. And even as we read God's word and say, I want to model my life after this, it's really just God forming us in and after himself. And we can take that and say, look, I did it. <laughs> Lord, I did that thing. I took your law and I made it beautiful. It's like, no, you didn't. This is God's strength on full display. And it is something that is good, that is right, that is beautiful for us to live in and under the rule of God it is a sweet place to live, as you can see. As you live the way God wants you to live, you get to experience the joy of living under that. With the merciful, he shows mercy. There is a world of mercy to be found, a world of goodness to be found under the rule of God. As all of us saints who seek after God, to live after God, begin to live this way. This is what the kingdom of God begins to look like. Merciful, good, kind, loving, patient, gentle, <laughs> self-controlled people that experience those things as well because of God's provision. He says, you save the humble. You save the humble, turning to God for these things. God's way is perfect. In the forgiveness of our sins, one of the things we're able to do with the psalmist here, and this is actually quite difficult to do, to be able to say, I can stand on these words. I am righteous. I am a saint. With full humility saying, God is working these things out in me, and the, the work of Christ on my behalf actually is that powerful. It's not complete yet, but the Lord my God tells me, I delight in you. You're righteous. I have made you this way. Trust me and glorify me by trusting me. As we turn away and say, I'm not able to stand in the righteousness of God. I'm not able to receive the promises God has given on my behalf. We're actually saying, God, I'm not willing to trust your strength on my behalf. There is an honesty we need to be able to confess our own sin, but there's also an honesty to be able to say, the Bible says I am a saint. I don't get it. I don't understand it. 
But this is God's strength on my behalf in my absolute weakness. And we can learn to minister to one another here, to encourage each other, to encourage our own souls. And this is indeed something that displays God's strength through the church. So we do see God's strength uh, in our weakness, but also in our righteousness. And lastly, in our deliverance. Let's do continue to read here in verse 30, and this continues through the end. And we'll start with the first several verses here as we think about this. That the Lord is the one who delivers us. This is God. His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? And the God who equipped me with strength. He made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer. And he set, he, he set my, me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. And, the right hand, and with your right hand you supported me. And with your gentleness you made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me. And my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. And I did not turn back until they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. And they fell under my feet. For you equipped me with the strength for battle. You made those who rise against me to sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. And those who hated me, I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them as fine dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. And as we hear these words, there is a sense in which we get to recognize in my weakness and through the righteousness of God, he is acting on behalf of his people. And we're meant to see that as God does deliver us, as he uses these situations, it really is by his strength. This is not just a nice saying to say, God did these things. Yes, we give the honor to him, then turn back and say, but really, I mean, who are the good key players here? It is saying, no, this was entirely the work of God. There is none who is like our God, it says. There is none who accomplishes this. And as we look out at those things that oppose us, as those enemies that oppose the church, we think of for our own context. I mean, for them, this was a very real sense in which practical enemies surrounded them. Those who had opposed God really were against them. And you start to see in a very practical way through Israel that God does fight on behalf of his people. There is a visible, real section to the life of Israel in which there are enemies who wanted to kill them and God would defeat them. God would show this in an absolute nature. And God continues to fight on our behalf to give us the ability and the means to do these things, even as our enemy becomes somewhat more spiritual in nature. We think of Satan fighting for our souls, fighting for our allegiance. We even think of death itself, this final enemy. God does go after sin and death and all of these things in a similar manner in which he continues to go after it. 
And the believer is able to say, there are some ways in which he gives me to do this. What does he say? He says, you have set my feet on secure paths. You've made it wide. You've given me the ability to maneuver well. And you can think of this, and it is very practical. I can think of uh, even for uh, just hiking, you often recognize what this feels like to not have secure footing. There's this section down below uh, one of the, the dams on the Spokane River uh, in Post Falls, uh, just recreation area there. And we've hiked down there fairly often with our kids and our girls. And one of the things that, that you have to do is you have to crawl down the steep embankment to get down into the water. And it's very slippery. And one of the things, like as our kids will go down, like their feet aren't as sure as, as my wife or I's, Emily or I's, and they will slip often. And they, as we went down these things the first time, they were very fearful of it, of like, oh, like I'm going to fall down the entire way. And one of the things that they started to realize, like mom and dad will hold us and I will make it down. You made my feet secure. And in a very practical sense, we understand what this means. That God says, I will make your feet secure in a sort of metaphor but as we think about what does this look like for me to have secure feet as a believer, oftentimes non-believers will look in at believers and we can have secure footing and not even realize it. They will look in and say, your life has fallen apart, man. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> like, do you see all this stuff going on around you? As the church was looked at by onlookers and believers were being martyred and slaughtered, and it's like, these guys are praising and rejoicing in Jesus. And how are they doing this? Their feet are secure. Their soul was stable. They're able to say, I know who my God is. I know what is right. I know where I'm heading. I know what I'm to be doing. I'm not trying to figure these things out. I'm not shuffling and shifting with my feet, trying to say, what's the next step? The Lord is my light. He has given me direction. He has secured my feet, saying, yes, there's chaos around you, but this is the direction. And we don't even recognize the security that we have often. And sometimes it is the watching world that looks in and says, like, we feel the chaos. We don't know where to put our feet. We don't know how to do this. And we're scrambling up the hill, so to speak, to find a way through all of this. And the believer has their God behind them holding on. It says, even with the right hand, pushing them up where there is no secure way for their feet. And it even goes on to say, like, for the things that God has called you to do, for these battles that you will enter into, for these things, for Israel, it was physical battles. For us, there are many, many other things that the church is engaged with that we are to fight both individually and as a church. And as we continue in this, what is the comfort it gives us? It says, you will be able to leap over walls. Pretty helpful in a battle <laughs> to be able to leap over a wall. You will be able to bend a bow of bronze. You think of a Ulysses in the Odyssey, like even in that fictional tale, one of the things that was really exciting is that type of strength in battle was just unreal to think of the ability to be able to do that. And this is a practical way for God to be able to say that for anything I have called you to do, for this army that is out there that you have to face, for the callings that the church has before it, to be able to raise your kids within a world, 
in which you're not sure exactly how you're going to raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, if you're not sure how you're going to love your wife, if you're not sure how you're going to stay pure, if you're not sure how you're going to provide a way forward even in the church in a culture like this, the Lord says, you're going to be able to pull that bow back because I'm going to make it so you can. So if I have called you to do these things, I will give you the strength to do it. And we shouldn't be distracted with miracles, saying, Lord, I just want to see the miracle. It's to say, Lord, I want to go where you're going. And I'm not afraid of how I am going to get there because you will make it possible. And oftentimes we do get very distracted with what is the supernatural thing, the ability to pull that bow back. Spiritual gifts even becomes one of these areas in which we start to see the spiritual gift. And you saw it in the book of Corinthians where they got very excited about the gifts to say, that is the exciting thing. And in fact, that was just something God had given to the church to accomplish the work he'd given them to do. Follow me. Come after me. Nothing is impossible for you to do the things I've called you to do. And as we see the, we do have the ability to accomplish these things, we have to be reminded of this regularly. The people of God had to be reminded of this regularly. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and 8, uh, one of the things that we're reminded of as Moses is coming back to the people and reminding them of all this, he says, In the deliverance of his people, all will see that God is indeed God. Know therefore that the Lord is your God. And he is faithful. He keeps his covenant. He is steadfast in his love. And those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to the face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him, but he will repay him to his face. And if you say in your heart, as he continues on, these nations are greater than I. How can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. But you shall remember that the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out of this. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. And beware lest you say in your heart after these things, my Power and my might and the power of my hand have gotten me all this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And you recognize the way that we often work. We say, I'm not going to be able to do these things you've called me to, God. It's impossible. And then once it's happened, we say, I did that. We did it, guys. And this psalm reminds us you will be able to do it again and again. And this is the work of the Lord. Trust him. Teach this to your children. Teach this to those who are in the church. Remind each other again and again and again as time goes on. And this begins to be displayed to the watching world as they look in to say, that God is something different that they serve. We are given the strength of God, and the strength of God is seen on behalf of his people. What does it say here at the end of the psalm? It says, For I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. 
and sing your name. And the Apostle Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 15, verse 9, saying this is the Gentiles. This is the way that the gospel will go forward as we proclaim the name of our God and creator. All, of that, all that he accomplished on behalf of the people of Israel, on behalf of the church, throughout all of the history of salvation for God's people, this is displayed now for the watching world to say, you can actually come in and sing the praises of our God. This is almost spoken here as if this will be a possibility someday, and yet it is a reality now that as we do this, as we proclaim these things well, this is the gospel continuing to go forward to radiate God's glory from within the church. To say this is the power of our God. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to his offspring forever. And this psalm is reminding us to declare this, to trust in, to our families, to our church, to the walking, watching world. And this is not for our benefit necessarily, for our comfort only, and just for the things that we want to do. And in fact, there is a plan in a world in which God is creating. And he's saying, you are being shaped and formed in this. This is the work for you to do. The kingdom come is a reality for the church to say, I want God's kingdom here. All of the things that I'm a part of in my life, it is shaping and forming the kingdom of God. And this is all the things he's called me to. And even as it feels impossible, we say it is possible. Jesus accomplished this work. Jesus accomplished this work in a far greater way than we ever could. He displayed God's glory in a way that was unreal and enabled us to rest under this completed work in a way that we can actually rest. Jesus endured all of this persecution and suffering rightly so that in his weakness we might become strong. In his perfectly lived righteousness, we might have righteousness. And his defeat of evil, of persecution, of even death itself, we might have victory completely. It is because of Jesus that we are able to say, in my weakness, at the absolute lowest, I am as strong as possible. <laughs> Through my God, it is because of this work. And this is a good news for the watching world. This is the heart of the good news for the watching world to say, there is comfort, there is peace, there is rest for the gentle, for the lowly. There is a place for you within the church to be able to rest and not be weak. But he will make you strong. Indeed, something for us to worship and to praise our God this morning. Let's do pray as we close.